Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Where does God live? Have you ever thought about that? Where does God live? As a young man, I was sure God lived at 310 Third Street in Cady's, Kentucky, at the East Cady's Baptist Church. Because I was often told as a young man, boy, take off your hat. You're in God's house. Or I was often told, um, for example, in the, the upstairs of our little country church, uh, there was what we called spooky hallway, this long, dark hallway where all the Sunday school classes on either side. And sometimes after the Sunday night or Wednesday night service, me and my friends would go upstairs and we would dare one another to run down spooky hall as fast as we could. So we would run down that hallway of our church screaming and yelling. And every single time we should have known better, we would get to the end of the hall and walk through that little door And we would open it up, and there he was, lurking in the shadows, Deacon David. (laughs) And he would glare down at us and say, boys, quit running. You're in God's house. And then we would take off running the opposite direction, praying he didn't tell mom. Also, I remember growing up at East Katie's Baptist Church, the kids' choir, where we would sing, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon, all those around will warm up and it's glowing. Anybody remember that one, Kids Choir? Well, uh, before we started Kids Choir practice every week, we would, uh, the teacher would pass around a little uh, trash can uh, called the gum offering. That teacher was my mom. (laughs) And so before we could sing, we had to take our chewing gum and place it in the gum offering because you can't chew bubble gum in church because it's God's house. I never understood what God had against juicy fruit to this day. But where does God live? Does God live at East Katie's Baptist Church? Does God live here at 800 Pleasant Valley Road in these four walls? Is this God's house? Well, today we start a brand new four-week sermon series where the main emphasis of the book is God's house, and it's in Haggai. So turn with me in the Old Testament to this short, kind of obscurest, the sixth shortest book in the Bible, only 38 verses, the book of Haggai. Good luck finding it. In my Bible, it's page 791. Uh, if that helps, it may also be that it's right before Zephaniah and Zechariah. Not that that would probably help much either. You know, back home, uh, we pronounced it Haggai. So I don't know if it's Haggai or Haggai. I'll probably go back and forth. Four weeks going through the book of Haggai where God is teaching us about his 
house. And we're going to pick it up in verse number one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, by the way, that would have been August 29th, 520 B.C., for those of you that want to pay attention to details, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, let's just stop right there and do a little bit of context, okay? Haggai is an Old Testament prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, God would speak to his people through prophets. It was a thus saith the Lord kind of thing. God would put his words in their mouth, and they would communicate those words to his people. So when a prophet like Haggai spoke, or Zechariah, or Malachi, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, when they spoke, it was as though God was speaking because it was God's word delivered through them. So what, what Haggai is doing here is delivering a word from the Lord to a group of people, God's chosen people. Now, they had been, if you'll remember, in exile or captivity for 70 years. This group of people called the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem. They had torn down the temple, burned down the city, made all the Jewish people leave so that happened for 70 years, but then God raised up a Persian king named Cyprus, and Cyprus overturned the law and, and basically let the Jews go back to their homeland, okay? So in verse 1 here, we meet a guy named Zerubbabel, who was the governor's son, who was also a descendant of David, meaning he was an ancestor of Jesus, so in 537 B.C., Zerubbabel had led the first group of Jews back to their homeland. Okay, so about 50,000 Jews have been led by Zerubbabel back to Israel. And then once the people of God began to come back to their homeland, the, the first order of priority was they had to rebuild the infrastructure of the city. You remember last fall, we studied the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah led God's people to rebuild the walls of the city for its security and protection. But the most important thing the people of God had to rebuild when they got back home was they had to build the temple back up. They had to rebuild what Haggai refers to as God's house because the Babylonians had burned up God's house. So what do you think about, again, when you hear that phrase, God's house? What do you think about when you hear the word temple? Well, we probably think about something like this, a physical structure, the temple, the place of worship where God's people would come. And in the Old Testament, that's exactly what the temple was was. And we're going to come back to that. But first, I want us to do a little theological work on the theology of the temple, okay? In the New Covenant or in the New Testament or where we are now, God's house is not a building. It's a person. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes as the new and final 
temple. John 2, 19, Revelation 21, Jesus says, tear this temple down, speaking to himself of himself, he says, and I'll bring it back in three days. All right, so, so now for us under the new covenant, for us to know God and experience God, we don't primarily come to a building, although buildings are a gift from the Lord. It's a place for God's people together. But for us to know and experience God, it doesn't start in a building. We come to a person. We come to Christ, the new temple. In Christ is where God and sinners meet. The greatest need of our life and heart is not to go to church, it's to go to Christ. So, so in Christ, the true new temple, now a priest, unlike in the old covenant, a priest no longer has to offer sacrifices on an altar for the forgiveness of our sins. We serve coffee out there. We're not killing bulls and goats and sheep. We don't do that anymore. I remember growing up, and they would have a special music, and we would sing that old Ray Bolt song. That's what this altar is for. And the preacher would say, come to the altar. And, and I know what we mean by that, but if you want to be theologically right, this is not an altar this is a platform. We come down here and pray. That's great. This is not an altar. There is one true and final altar, and it was the cross of Jesus Christ. And there on that altar, Christ made the final sacrifice of himself. And then Hebrews tells us Jesus sat down after he made that sacrifice because he was finished, meaning there is no more sacrifice to be made. There is no more penance to complete. Jesus did all of that. Then, when we come to faith in Jesus through what the Bible calls our union with Christ, we become one with Christ, and then we become part of that true temple. Christ is the true temple of God, and when we come to faith in Jesus, we become what Peter calls the living stones. So the church is not a building. The church is a people, the people of God united to Christ, the true temple, which, which means if this building were to burn down tonight, God forbid, but if it were to, We'd still have church next Sunday because the church is not a building, it's a people united in Christ, the true temple. So that's your biblical theology of the temple. So in the most technical biblical sense, this is a warehouse, not God's house, Monday through Saturday. But when God's people united to Christ gather here for worship, and when God's people come together under the word and confessing our sins and believing the gospel, in that spiritual sense, this is God's house right here. But it's not because we got a steeple. Well, we don't have a steeple, but in theory, if we did, that, that's not what makes it God's house. It's not that it says church on the sign. It's, it's the people of God united in Christ. Now, all that to say, though, back to our context in Haggai chapter 1. 
in the Old Testament, before Christ came, it was different. And the physical structure, the physical temple made out of actual bricks and mortar, that was the true temple. That's where God's spirit dwelled. That's where God made himself known. So in the wilderness wanderings back in the book of Exodus, it was called the tabernacle. That's where the Holy Spirit was. And then later on in the New Testament, it was the temple where the presence of God uniquely dwelled. So in a real sense, without that physical temple, God was homeless. So in some sense, God's everywhere, the Bible teaches. Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. I mean, you can't escape the presence of God. He's omnipresent. But, but uniquely, God would manifest himself in the temple in a way that he would not manifest himself otherwise. So if there is no temple structure, the people of God really couldn't fully know and experience and worship God. So remember, in Haggai, the temple had been destroyed for decades. The Babylonians ransacked it. So now the people are returning back home to Israel, to Jerusalem, and there's no temple. That's a massive problem. God's homeless. How can the people know and worship God? So Ezra, another Old Testament book, if you want to study that, going along with Haggai, that'd be helpful Ezra tells us that once the people returned to Jerusalem, they started to rebuild the temple. They knew how important that was, and they got the foundation laid, but then some other countries, and there's some politics involved, the people scared them, and so they stopped building the temple. Okay, so the temple is still lying in ruins at this point. Then the people just got busy with their own lives, basically is what we learn in the Bible. Because remember, they've been gone for seven decades, so they're, they're trying to rebuild their homes. They're, real, they're restarting their careers, their businesses. They had crops to plant, right? I mean, they had families to raise and PTA meetings to attend. They had little league games to go to. They had Netflix to binge. I mean, they had, they had Instagram to scroll through and TikTok. They, they had all the things we had without Wi-Fi, but they got busy. They had lives. They were starting all over. Imagine if you had to move to a whole new community and start from scratch. You, you got a lot going on. And so what the Bible teaches us is they became so consumed in their own busy, hectic lives, they put God and God's house on the back burner. Nobody had time to rebuild God's house. They had to rebuild their own house. And so for 16 years, the rebuilding of God's house lies dormant. That old bulldozers collecting dust hadn't been started up in years. Nobody's swinging the hammer. God's house is lying abandoned like in an old western ghost town that used to be relevant when there was a gold rush. And it's empty. So when we pick it up in Haggai chapter one, God's not happy with his people because they're putting everything else in their lives before him. They were more concerned with their house than they were God's house. And so in Hebrews one, particularly this week and next week, kind of a two-part week one sermon, 
You're going to see the discipline of God upon his people. But in 520 B.C., God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. A hundred years later, this guy named Malachi would come along, the last book in your Old Testament. But, but God used Haggai and Zechariah to light a fire in God's people, to, to bring a harsh word to them, to awaken them from their apathetic, self-absorbed lives, to prioritize God's house once again. So that's a long way of saying what the next four weeks is going to be about. That's the introduction. So now let's actually do the sermon. How about that? All right, let's go back to verse number one and two. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to the Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, here's what he's going to say. Look at this word from God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, God speaking here, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's a big clue as to God's displeasure. Look at how he refers to his people in verse number two. He says, these people. Now, normally, when referring to his own chosen people, what's God say? My people, my people. Here, God says, these people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild my house. God's disappointed that they are prioritizing their house over his house. Now back to verse two, and let's look at that word house, which is the main theme you see throughout the book. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I uh, was talking with someone in the restroom out here about high school basketball earlier, and it, it takes me back to my high school basketball days. Some of my greatest memories were as a Trick County Wildcat, and especially those Friday nights uh, when our, our big rival games against like Lyon County and Caldwell County and I just remember the energy we all felt before Friday night home games. You know, we would wear our jerseys to school that day. We'd have the big pep rally in the gym that afternoon, and the cheerleaders would be all excited. And, you know, the student section of Wildcat Gymnasium is packed. But then what I, I in particular remember is we would all be in the locker room, you know, before the game, before warm-ups, and we're getting on our gear and our windsuits and all those cool things, and we would have all this music playing really loud, the kind of music you can't play in church, hashtag 90s hip-hop, you know, Lil Wayne and Jay-Z and Tupac. Kids don't Google any of that. It's really bad to hear. And uh, But that's kind of what you had to do, you know? And uh, So we're listening to this loud music, and every game, one of our players would, like, kind of stand up on a chair or something and, like, shout out really loud, this is our house. Nobody comes into our house and disrespects us, you know, and like Wildcat Gymnasium was our house and we're going to take pride in our house and then we easily end up losing. Uh, but anyway, we had good intentions. Uh, but, but, but you take pride in your house. If you're an athlete, when you play a home game, it's different. What if you got home from church this afternoon, walk in your house and there's some random person laying up on your couch? I mean, you're like, okay, who who are you? What are you doing in my house eating my Doritos? Right? We 
There's a certain amount of pride we rightly we take in our house. Well, in Haggai, in his day, the temple was God's house. And God took his house very seriously. You didn't chew gum in God's house. You didn't run in God's house. You didn't wear your hat in God's house. You, but, you, but you honored God's house. In fact, seven times in Haggai, we see God refer to his house. Let me just show you four of them. We'll look at the rest over the next couple weeks. Verse two, again, you've already read it once. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse four, look, look at this disciplinary word and look at the play on words. In verse two, they said, God, we ain't got time to build your house. It's not time. God said, let's talk about time for a minute. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? God's like, time is not the issue. You got time to build your own house. The problem is you don't have enough time to put God number one. The problem is God's just not your priority. We do what is important to us. So God's calling them on it. Never say you're too busy for God. God has given us all the time we need to put him number one. So he said, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your penalty houses while my house lies in ruins? And then in verse eight, God says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And then in verse nine, look at this. God disciplines them for not rebuilding it. Next week's sermon will be on the discipline of God more specifically. But in verse nine, it says, you look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. God is frustrating their plans because they're not prioritizing him. When we don't put God number one, things won't go well for us. God will bring his discipline. Why, though, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while the bulldozers laying over there hadn't even been gassed up in years, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So four times, just in today's short text, God rebukes his people for not rebuilding his house. But the root issue is that they didn't make time for God's house because they were so preoccupied with their own house. They were focused on the wrong house. It reminds me of a story two and a half years ago we moved into our uh, what was a new house to us at that time. And immediately to the left of our house, there's another house that looks a lot like our house. So it was the first day we move in and the moving truck, some of you helped us with that. Thank you. Sorry about the herniated disc since that time, uh, moving all that heavy stuff. But um, we're, we're moving in. And so, you know, the kids are out riding bikes and, and hanging out and all that. And my neighbor on my left, we're out in the yard and he introduces himself. We're a nice guy. And he says, hey, let me show you something. And he pulls out his phone. And, uh, he, he pulls out his phone, and he's got video cameras. Some of you have this in his house, and he can, like, on his phone, wherever he is, like, see what is, is at his door and all that stuff. And he shows me this video. Think of your mind, I've just met this guy. We, just, we haven't been moved in, like, five hours, okay? And, uh, and one of my sons and his friend, uh, they will remain unnamed. Uh, they may or may not be in this church right now. They were uh, trying to get in the neighbor's house. 
through the front door. And like he had his door locked, but they're like pushing on it, like kind of frustrated. And the neighbor's watching these two random kids the whole time, apparently trying to break into his house. Then it's funny because he has the audio too, and it hits them all of a sudden. And in the video, you hear them say out loud, oh, shoot, wrong house. And they take off running like they've seen a ghost. And I'm like, son, this is not a good start with our neighbor. Like, they already think you're trying to break in. But they had the wrong house. When Haggai won, the people of God were deeply dedicated to building a house. It was just the wrong house. Look at the play on words God uses to draw this to their attention in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house over here, lies in ruins? Here's what God is saying. He's like, look, compare your house to my house. Let's do a a little comparison here. God says, your house has a roof. Your house has nice gutters. Your house has windows. Your house is painted nicely. Your house has insulation, a security system, surround sound, big screens. Look at your house. It's popping on Zillow. It's blowing up. But he says, okay, but now look at my house over here. Look at my house. It's in shambles. Had been painted in decades. You can't can't even go there. It's a ghost town. God's saying, where's your priorities? I'm homeless. And you're living the American dream. And then he does the same thing down in verse 9. He says, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. That's his discipline. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Again, God says your time is not the issue. You got plenty of it. You got nicely manicured yards. You got the little white picket fence to keep the chihuahua in. You got your shutters painted. You got the driveway pressure washed. You getting your home ready for the parade of homes through Jerusalem? You're, some of y'all are even trying to get on cribs on MTV. Like you, you know what I'm saying? Like you got the lights, you got you got the whole deal. All while my house lies in shambles. He says, Where are your priorities? Their top priority was themselves. And God gets put on the back burner. And so what they and what we often do as sinners is they begin to defend themselves and make excuses. And in verse 2, they're like, God, the timing's not right. We'll do it later. Spiritual procrastination. I know I ought to put God number one in my life, but I'll, I got kids right now. They're too busy. When the kids get out of the house, then we'll get reconnected to God or it works crazy. I, I know I need to make God more important, but I'll, I'll do it later. When I retire, then I'll have more time to God. And in the spirit of Garth Brooks, so often tomorrow never comes. Every time you say not yet to God, it increases the likelihood you will never say yes to God. 
Because every time you say later or tomorrow or not yet, it makes it easier the next time to do it again. Some of you have been saying tomorrow to God for 20 years. Some of you have been saying, well, COVID happened, you know, and I got off the back, I put God on the back burner and I'll, I'll get, and it's like, well, COVID's over. God's never left the building. He's here. But then in verse number nine, they say we're too busy to build God's house. In verse six, they blame the economy. They had a bad economy in verse six. Inflation was up. The market was down. It's not a good time to invest in God's house. Have you seen the interest rates? Others would say, well, it's just a building. God doesn't need a building. Or most popular, they would say, well, we know we need to build God's a house, but we just want somebody else to pay for it. We're going to build a wall. We're going to make them pay for it. Same principle. Donald Trump theology. Everybody wants the building as long as it doesn't have to come out of our bank account. But whatever the reason for them not wanting to build God's house, here's the root sin. God was not their number one priority in life. He just wasn't. Or they would have found a way to build God's house because you do what's important to you. They were more committed to their own comfort than they were God's glory. And so God pleads with them in verse eight. Look at, look at his command. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I might take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. So all that to say, what in the world does this have to do with us? Here's the questions that I think God is asking of us today. Are we more concerned with our house or God's house? Are we more concerned with our kingdom or God's kingdom? Are we more committed to our own comfort or God's glory? In short, who's number one in our life? I think that is the primary question we should walk away with today. Who's number one in my life? Is it me or God? Here's, Jesus would come along and teach the exact same way in Matthew 6, 33. Here's what Jesus said. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things, your house, your career, your family, your clothes, your, all that'll be, that'll be added to you. Here's what Jesus is teaching is. Jesus isn't saying our house is not important. Jesus isn't saying that our family is not important. He's not saying that our career is not important. He's not saying that our investments are not important. He's just saying they can't be number one. Jesus promises us in verse 33. He says, if you will put me number one, my kingdom first, my house first, my righteousness first, my name first, then I'll take care of all the things that you're worried about. So here's the question from God's word to us. Is God number one in our lives? Now, what if I were to ask us to do an exercise? What if I were to say, hey, take out your program right now and a pen and let's write out one to five. What are your top five priorities in life? If you want to do that, you can. You don't have to. But what if, just do it in your head at least. 
in order of priority, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, what's most important to me? Most of us would probably say God's number one. Now, some would be honest, but look, I'm not gonna lie in church. I'm not even gonna pretend like God's number one. He's not. But most of us got just enough religiosity in us or just enough convicted to say, well, you know, God, number one, okay? But here's the real question. We may say God is number one on paper, but if we were to look at the objective evidence or what Jesus would call the fruit or my grandma would call the proof in the pudding, is God actually number one? Okay, so when we look at how much time we spend in God's word, is God actually number one? What if I told my wife, she is my number one earthly relationship, honey, I love you more than anything. You're, you are my earthly priority outside of Jesus, it's you, Annie. And what if I never answered her calls, I never read her text, and I never cared anything about what she had to say to me. Every time she started talking, I went in the other room. What if I told Annie she was my number one earthly relationship, but I never listened to what she had to say? Y'all be like, you're full of it. She's not important to you. How many of us say God's number one, but we're not in his word every day? And what we're saying is, I don't care what God says, because this is God's text message to us, his email, his voicemail, his conversation to us. Can we say God's number one? Do our prayer lives prove that? Again, back to the husband-wife analogy. Annie, you're my number one earthly priority in life, but don't be offended, I'm not gonna talk to you. Okay, what? You can't say your wife's important if you don't talk to her. Well, prayer is just talking to God. How can we say God is number one if we rarely talk to him? It's, unless it's like a Hail Mary when we're freaking out and need a miracle. No, we talk to people that are important to us. Our prayer lives say a lot about, is God number one? What about the things we talk about? Is God actually number one? What about, okay, y'all ready for this? I do this because Jesus does this. Jesus Christ talked about, you know, you will see the spiritual maturity of a church very quickly when the preacher starts talking about money. Few things will expose the true maturity of the people of God than a sermon series on money. It reveals a lot. Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, where your money is, there. Jesus said, if you wanna know the true spiritual maturity of a person, don't look at how many Bible studies they've done. Don't look at how much theology they know. He said, look at their bank statements. So when we look at our bank statements and our generosity to God's church, God's kingdom, is God actually number one? is if we spend more on our mortgages and our vehicles and our second homes and renovations and gadgets 
and shoes and vacations. If we spend more on that stuff than we do God's house and God's kingdom, he's, he's not number one in our lives. I mean, we could say that he is, but objectively, he's not. When we look at our romantic relationships or our marriage or our dating lives or our family, is God number one? Christ says the church is his bride. Christ said, I'm the head. The church is my body. So few things say more about our love for Christ than our love for his body, his bride. Some of us say God's number one in my life, but we put his bride, his body on the back burner. Can I just be real honest according to the word of God? You can't love Christ and not love the church. Like there, there's this, this disgruntled people in the world that, that, that have this theology where like it's me and Jesus, but I just don't do the church thing. I, that, that's not Christianity. I, it's, just, it's not. The church is flawed. The church is broken. The church will hurt us, no doubt. Some of the deepest hurt I've had has been in churches over, so I'm not disregarding that. But friends, let's not blame Jesus on what knuckleheaded people did. Even if the bride of Christ hurts us, it's still Christ's bride. And we can't love the groom and not love his bride. If we don't prioritize the church, we're not prioritizing Christ. So you can look at the objective evidence and say, is God actually number one in my life? Man, I know, like that's some heavy hitting stuff, isn't it? Man, welcome to the Old Testament. The prophets come with fire and zeal. Now here's why I know, and we're almost done, God is asking us to deal with these hard questions. Look at verses five through seven. You're gonna see a phrase repeated twice, and I'm gonna come back to it next week. But I just want you to, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse five, consider your ways. In other words, all of us, let's do some self-examination right now. Consider your life. Avoid the temptation to apply this sermon to somebody that ought to be here to hear it. I wish my husband was here to hear this. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but somebody on Instagram always has a cuter outfit. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In other words, here's what God's saying. You're not putting me number one. How's that working out for you? Are you satisfied? I mean, so how's it going not prioritizing me in your life? Is that working? Do you have no financial anxiety or stress? Is that by hoarding up at all in savings and investments and not for God? Is that, is that giving you better sleep at night? How's that working for you? By not prioritizing me, are you happier? 
Next week, the message is God's discipline comes when we don't prioritize him. So then in verse seven, he says it again. Consider your ways. God is saying, examine your current level of frustration and dissatisfaction in your life. Consider it and now say, what is the correlation between the issues in my life and me not putting God number one? And Haggai says, there is a direct cause and effect. Life only works when God is number one. The whole universe and cosmos is built upon this principle. Christ is king. Christ is preeminent. Christ holds all things together. And when we don't put Christ and his kingdom, number one, nothing else works out. And we'll find ourselves perpetually frustrated, disappointed, this whole God thing's not working out for me. And God says, consider your ways. Repent. Put me number one. Is God number one? Let's bow our heads and we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Before we do, let's have a few moments of confession and repentance. Okay, so don't check out. We're moving into a very important time of the service, the time of response, where we're going to go before the Lord's table for those that are believers. But we need to ready ourselves and prepare our hearts. Because when we go to the Lord's Supper, we're, we're going to have a dinner with the King of the world, Jesus Christ. And as we approach a meal with the King, it only honors him and is befitting for the King to ensure that our love for this king is greater than our love for anything in this world. And that to the extent that it's not, there is grace, there is forgiveness in Christ, but he is calling us to repent and to confess any and all areas where he has not been number one. And so, brothers and sisters, let's consider our ways. What are we holding on to today? What have we not yet totally surrendered to God? What is keeping us from making God number one? Just ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind idols. Is it a relationship? with a person you should not be dating or seeing? Is it a particular sin? Is it bitterness? Lust? Jealousy? Greed? Are we robbing God, as Malachi is going to say a hundred years later, by withholding our tithes and offerings? Is it our time too busy for the word of God, too busy 
to make discipleship a priority in my life, too busy to come to church, too busy to serve the church, too busy to disciple my children, too busy to pray with my spouse. Bring it all before the Lord and confess and repent where necessary. As we prepare to move to the Lord's table, if you didn't uh, grab the elements on your way in, would you just slip your hand up? And we have worship attendants who are happy to bring that to you now, so you don't have to get up, move around. Just hold that hand up. And they're happy to serve you in that way. For everyone else, just continue to prepare your heart to receive this meal with Jesus. We want to be clear, this is not a sacrifice. This is not an altar. The sacrifice has been made. The Bible is unequivocally clear. There is one final sacrifice for sinners, and that altar was the cross of Christ, and it is finished. See, we are not here to re-sacrifice Jesus. We are not here to pay penance. That has all been done. We are here to be recipients of the finished work of Christ represented in this bread and in this cup. So believers, as they were eating in Matthew 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's eat together in Jesus' name. And then Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink in Jesus' name. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www 
www.pleasantvalley.cc.